Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The third hearing of the House January 6th committee focused on the pressure former President Trump put on then-Vice President Mike Pence to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Here's Representative Liz Cheney. What the President wanted the Vice President to do was not just wrong. It was illegal and unconstitutional. We'll talk this hour about the architect of Trump's plan, California lawyer John Eastman, who asked for a presidential pardon following the insurrection, and will be joined by Congress member Adam Schiff, who is set to lead tomorrow's hearing of the committee investigating January 6th. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The fourth of several planned hearings of the House January 6th committee is set for tomorrow. The first three have focused on how former President Trump created and pushed the big lie of a stolen election, despite repeatedly being told he'd lost, and the pressure Trump put on then-Vice President Mike Pence to stop the certification of the election results. Joining me to talk about last week... Ankush Kadori, former federal prosecutor based in Washington, D.C., a contributing writer for New York Magazine's Intelligencer and a contributing editor at Politico Magazine. Ankush Kadori, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Ron Elving, senior editor and correspondent on the Washington desk at NPR News. Hi, Ron. Good to be with you, Mina. So start, if you would, by just giving us a quick overview of the key things we learned at last Thursday's hearing. The key things we learned on Thursday had to do with Mike Pence, the former vice president who had been pressured in every conceivable way by former President Trump. He had been bullied on the telephone. He had had tweets sent out to the world about Mike Pence and his courage and his responsibility to in some way overturn the results of the election that Trump and Pence had lost. And yet we learned that Trump was advised by his own chief of staff, by his own attorney on his staff, and then by outside legal counsel that they sought out, including J. Michael Ludig, who is an icon of conservative legal scholarship and a longtime Circuit Court of Appeals judge for the circuit that meets in Chicago. Uh, it was an extraordinary performance by Ludig, who was also on NPR on Saturday evening, repeating that he sees a war on democracy. Mm -hmm. But in the instance of the vice president, he told him, no, there is absolutely no authority for the vice president to return results to the states. And his job was to open the envelopes, count the votes. Yes, let's actually hear Judge Michael Ludig in his own words on Thursday. There was no basis in the Constitution or laws of the United States at all for the theory espoused by Mr. Eastman, at all, none. 
And really quickly, just to underscore what you said, uh, Ron, that that Michael Ludig is a, a figure, a superstar in the conservative legal movement. And the fact that he was coming out speaking so strongly against the legal theory that drove Trump to try to get Pence to block certification or delay certification of the election is, is really quite notable. He was appointed to the federal bench by the first President Bush in 2005 when the second President Bush was filling two Supreme Court uh, vacancies. Uh, Michael Ludig was on the very shortest of lists. He was down to like three, four, five names. Mm-hmm. He was one of the people that the second President Bush was considering. And uh, he might have had the job that instead went to Sam Alito, or he might have had the job that went to John Roberts. So it was a very close call. He is, as I was saying, without peer, really, for respect, since Antonin Scalia is no longer with us, uh, Robert Bork's no longer with us. Those were the other people mentioned in, in similar terms as being touch points, uh, absolute milestones in legal circles on the conservative side. Right. And he references Mr. Eastman, who, of course, he means John Eastman, largely seen as the architect of the plan to try to get then-Vice President Mike Pence to uh, to basically overturn the election results by stopping the certification process and so on and trying to send it back to the states. Can you say a little bit more about the legal theory, or at least the theory that Eastman espoused, before I get Ankush to weigh in on on what he thinks of it? John Eastman actually was one of Ludig's clerks, so Ludig knew him rather well. Uh, John Eastman then went out to California and uh, ran for office a couple times statewide and for Congress unsuccessfully. Uh, He's been a law professor and dean at the Chapman Law School down in Southern California. Uh, Chapman came up with this idea, and he came up with quite a few ideas in the last couple, three years, including saying Mm -hmm. that, 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 uh, that, for example, Kamala Harris was not constitutionally qualified to run for vice president because her parents were not born in the United States. Her parents, she, of course, was. Things of that nature. And one of the theories he came up with that uh, caught the attention of the former president was that perhaps the vice president, since he actually announces the results on January 6th by constitutional amendment and statute, could actually say, no, uh, there's a dispute here. Some people don't think these electors are legitimate, even though they were totally certified by all the governors, Republican and Democratic. And uh, we can send these back to the states for further proceedings, maybe in the legislature, maybe look around for some other electors, that that would be within the purview of the vice president. And, of course, that is exactly what Ludig was rejecting and what Vice President Pence himself rejected as a first impulse, saying, well, no one should have that kind of power. No one should have that much power. And, of course, he is right. Ankush, what do you think? Do you agree with Ludig that uh, no one should have that kind of power and that theory really didn't have any legal grounding? Yeah, I do. I mean, it, it, even to call it a theory, uh, I think it's, it's kind of charitable to Eastman because, I, I mean, if we go back over the history, which has been sort of slowly unfurled as a result of, um, you know, the, the committee's um, work and also, you know, reporting that's been done in the year and a half since since January 6th. I mean, Eastman had like really a series of ad hoc legal positions. Um, you know, he would sort of change them or they would tinker with them as they were kind of getting batted down internally or, or coming up against resistance among, uh, intern, you know, White House lawyers and Pence's advisors. Um, so, it, which, by the way, is not exactly the hallmark of a, a principled uh, interpretation of the law when <laughs> your theory keeps changing, but the result never does. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think Ludwig put it well. Um you know, as as a legal matter, and, and yeah, I totally echo the sentiment. I mean, Ludwig is really as 
as good as it gets as far as sort of a conservative legal jurist and, and thinker uh, on legal matters. Um, but I also thought, you know, Pence put it well himself, um, you know, when he spoke to the Federalist Society earlier this year. And I think he kind of came at it in a way I think a lot of Americans do when he just sort of said, like, you know, this the result here just can't be right. <laughs> like, you can put all the sort of legal provisions, insert them into your argument and talk about the framers and pick and, you know, pick and choose um, from the historical record. But, you know, Pence's position, which uh, I think he articulated nicely, is it just kind of can't be right that the vice president would have all of this authority uh, to just effectively overturn the election. And we actually have tape of Pence speaking to the Federalist Society in February. Here he is. There are those in our party who believe that, as the presiding officer over the joint session of Congress, that I possess unilateral authority to reject electoral college votes. And I heard this week that President Trump said I had the right to overturn the election. But President Trump is wrong. I had no right to overturn the election. The presidency belongs to the American people and the American people alone. And frankly, there is no idea more un-American than the notion that any one person could choose the American president. And Ron Elbing, we learned that Pence communicated this to Trump multiple times before Trump went on the ellipse and said that Trump could do this very thing, along with Eastman and Rudy Giuliani, saying that he could do this very thing. What else did we learn about how Pence handled the what he was being asked to do by his president? Pence was quite firm all along. He never entertained to anyone's testimony that he has not entertained. And this and this also includes the reporting of a number of people who have written about those days and who had great access to Pence and to his staff. Uh, he never wavered in his resolve to resist the president's entreaties. And yet the president, as you say, and, and Giuliani and Eastman were on that stage on January 6th on the ellipse urging him to do it as though it were still an open question. And all that Mike Pence needed was the will to do it, the courage to do it. So they were essentially telling the mob that, that well, a, a crowd of people that was going to become a mob, telling the crowd that they should march up to the Capitol and make sure that Mike Pence did what they wanted him to do. And when they got there and were informed that Pence had gone ahead and executed his constitutional role as he should, they were outraged. And Trump was still tweeting and telling them that Pence had failed them, but that he had let them down. And it's at that point, and this is all established in the videotape that's been shown in these hearings, it was at that point that people start chanting, hang Mike Pence, and storming into the Capitol, looking for Mike Pence, looking for others as well, Nancy Pelosi among them, but particularly looking for Pence and literally driving him out of the Senate chamber with less than a minute to spare before they had their hands on him. And at one point he was escaping 40 feet away from where the protesters were rioting in the next chamber. So he got down into the underground underneath the Capitol and waited there at his car. There was a suggestion. There was a suggestion made that they should get him in the car and drive him away from the Capitol after all the Secret Service is supposed to be protecting his safety. But he refused because he feared if he was driven away from the Capitol, he might not get back there that night to preside and do his role. And if he couldn't do that role, it wasn't clear who could. And that would interrupt the whole process of certifying the election. 
Well, listener Gloria wrote in ahead of the show, I'm watching the hearings intently as I've avoided all media coverage and even PBS shows on January 6th itself. I wanted to hear from the special committee about it. It's very upsetting as a whole. I am most struck by former Vice President Pence being the American hero out of Thursday's session. Hell has indeed frozen over. Listeners, if you as well want to share your thoughts on the hearings, the questions that you have about what's being presented for our guests. I'm also curious if you or someone you know changed their minds about what happened on January 6th as a result of the hearings. Have you changed your mind? Do you know of someone who's changed their mind about January 6th? You can tell us by emailing forum at kqed.org. You can post them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, that's 866-733-6786. And let's hear a little bit of President Trump right now. States want to revote. The states got defrauded. They were given false information. They voted on it. Now they want to recertify. They want it back. All Vice President Pence has to do is send it back to the states to recertify. And we become president, and you are the happiest people. That's President Trump on the ellipse on January 6th, talking about what Mike Pence's duty should be to the country as we know now, a duty that is illegal and unconstitutional. We'll have more about the January 6th hearings after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the hearings by the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol and reviewing what we've learned, the latest being the pressure campaign on Vice President Mike Pence. We're talking with Ron Elving, senior editor and correspondent on the Washington desk at NPR News, and Ankush Kadari, former federal prosecutor based in Washington, D.C. And you, our listeners, are here with us telling us what you think of the hearings, the questions that have come up for you, and whether or not you're seeing it having an impact one way or the other in terms of changing minds. You can tell us by posting your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. You can give us a call, 866-733-6786, 866 
1-800-273-6786. Daphne writes, who brought the wood for the gallows? Who built it? Isn't that evidence of premeditation? I'm really curious, Ankush Kadari, about just the, the various criminal liability or vulnerability as a result of what we learned and was presented last week. First, I guess, since we were just talking about President Trump before the break, on, for President Trump. So I think so far, you know, the committee has really pursued um, sort of explicating uh, two different sort of theories uh, of liability. One is that um, Trump and others lied about there being widespread fraud during the election. Um, the other is that they pursued an unlawful effort to prevent the certification of the votes. Each of those theories has some basis under two separate um, legal provisions, um, one that prevents um, uh, sort of impairing government functions, what's regarded as a, or what's called often a conspiracy to defraud the U.S. government, and the other um, obstructing uh, a, an official proceeding of the government, in this case, the congressional um, certification of electoral votes. So those are, and they're related but conceptually independent theories, meaning you could have, in theory, a, you know, a, a, a case premise just on the misleading or the false factual claims, and in theory, a case um, based just on the uh, uh, baseless legal theories. That's not really how the committee has, has sort of packaged it up. They've kind of pursued those things sort of in tandem. But just if you're sort of thinking about the, the arguments, those are the two possibilities. Um, you know, in evaluating what we've seen so far, you know, it's important, obviously, to bear in mind that we're really just seeing sort of a presentation from one side. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've gotten sort of key evidence on the first theory in the form of comments from, or testimony, I should say, from people like Bill Barr, Bill Stepien, who was the campaign manager, Jason Miller, who was an advisor on the Trump campaign, all of them saying, look, Trump, we were telling Trump over and over again that there was no fraud in this election. And then, you know, on the second theory, that was really the focus of Thursday's uh, um, hearing where um, there was obviously testimony about Eastman and his theory, and then testimony not just from Ludig, but uh, Greg Jacob, uh, uh, a lawyer for uh, Mike Pence, uh, Eric Hirschman, a White House counsel lawyer, all saying, look, when this came up, we thought it was crazy, and we said as much. Yeah, and in fact, um, well, let me play a little bit of Greg Jacob, uh, Pence's top attorney, describing a conversation we he had with John Eastman, where even John Eastman uh, did not seem to be particularly convinced in the locality of his plan. We had an extended discussion, an hour and a half to two hours on January 5th. Um, and when I pressed him on the point, I said, John, if the vice president did what you were asking him to do, we would lose nine to nothing in the Supreme Court, wouldn't we? Um, and he initially started, well, I think maybe you would lose only seven to two. Um, and after some further discussion, acknowledged, well, yeah, you're right. We would lose nine nothing. Ankush, I think you've said that you found this moment especially potent. Can you tell us why? Yeah, I mean, this testimony from Jacob, we heard it live, but he had said this previously in, in testimony to the committee um, during the investigation phase and had been cited in a brief that the committee filed in March. Um, and, I mean, it's a quite a remarkable, I think, admission that the legal position that you're advocating is actually at odds with controlling constitutional law. If you're saying, look, I'm going to lose 7-2 in front of the court, and once pressed, actually saying I'm going to lose 9-0, it's all the more striking since right at the time, um, Eastman's client, uh, Donald Trump, had appointed three of the nine sitting members of the Supreme Court 
Um, and so to to acknowledge that the, the theory would lose 9-0 is really quite striking. Now, I think Jacob eventually sort of alluded to something that I, I don't think had been sort of prominent uh, beforehand, which was that I think Eastman's position was that the Supreme Court would not reach the merits of the question because they would decline to resolve it uh, on the theory that it was a political question to be resolved by um, the political branches, something that's known as a political question doctrine. Meaning, if you sort of put the best gloss on it, Eastman's position may have been, I don't think that the Supreme Court is going to address this question. They're going to defer to Congress um, and the executive branch. But were they to eventually reach it, I would lose 9-0. Now, this is still not a terribly good argument um, to my mind, but just to give him you know, the full benefit of the doubt. And, and sort of the reason why I, I note that in particular is because, again, you know, we're hearing kind of one, one side of this presentation. I think it's a very well-conducted, uh, well-assembled presentation. It deserves to be take extreme, taken extremely, extremely seriously. Um, but it's just worth keeping that in mind. And then just to come back to your earlier question, which is, you know, what, what does this have to do with Trump in particular? You know, this aspect of the presentation and this theory, right, that Eastman was was promoting a theory that, uh, a legal theory that was at odds with constitutional law, I think it's harder to pin on Trump than on Eastman because, right, Eastman is Trump's lawyer. There's an asymmetry in expertise. Trump could claim that he was relying on on Eastman for for his legal advice, and you could assemble the whole array of people who were um, coming down at, at, on the other side with Eastman and say, well, Trump couldn't have really believed this. But, uh, and that's a fair, I think, position to take, uh, perhaps even the correct one. Um, but I just wanted to note that, like, as we're talking about Eastman and the things that Eastman done, it's not like there's a one-to-one um, transposition between his liability and Trump's. I see. Though it is interesting that Greg Jacob did also uh, provide video testimony that Mr. Eastman had admitted in front of Trump two days before the insurrection that uh, that is planned to have Mr. Pence essentially stop the electoral vote count or certification was in fact not legal. <laughs> I don't know if that says that much. The other thing I did want to ask you about was how compelling is the fact that Eastman sought a pardon after the insurrection to you? So I think it's uh, obviously very um, notable as a sort of political matter, as a practical matter. I will say, and I think I maybe hold a minority view on this at, at the moment, the mere fact of requesting a pardon to me is not itself an admission of guilt. I think, or a consciousness um, of it, or a consciousness of it. it you know, it's kind of like when someone um, invokes their Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate themselves in a court proceeding. Right? These are rights that we have. It doesn't necessarily mean that you believe you're guilty. What it really means is you're worried that the government will pursue you criminally, and that could even include in the you know unlikely scenario that you know you're concerned that like a politically motivated prosecutor is going to come after you, and so you you know you want to get a pardon or you want to invoke your Fifth Amendment right. I don't think that that was a particularly um, realistic concern at the time, considering you know we had Joe Biden incoming, and actually as of January seventh, it was you know Merrick Garland's nomination had been formally announced. So the idea that these folks in particular were going to kind of have it in for them, I think, was just not really one worth entertaining seriously. So just on the principle of it, you know, people can ask for pardons, fine. Um, I think if you you know read. The context surrounding the this particular concern, uh, and particularly now that we know that people were telling him, like you're going to need a criminal lawyer, um, you know, it reflects uh, a, a real 
understandable level of, of concern on his part. I will add, though, he had been talking about this issue publicly, you know, even after that sort of, uh, you know, everything that happened in January and all that, you know, which you could say is not necessarily consistent with someone who, like, really thinks that they committed a crime. You typically clam up. Well, Greg writes, is the universal agreement among all constitutional scholars that there is no legitimate way for the vice president to intervene in the presidential certification process? Are there none who have argued otherwise? Ankush, you want to take that really quick? That's a really good question. So one of the things that Eastman has pointed to um, is that in the wake of the 2000 election, um, which obviously, you know, was Al Gore, George W. Bush, and there was, you know, questions surrounding what happened in Florida— um, there was some scholarship that Eastman said raised questions uh, about how to pro- properly interpret the Electoral Count Act, whether it was constitutional and what the Constitution said on on these sort of on these sort of issues. I don't think like, I, I, you know, even the people who generated the articles that Eastman has cited have since said that he misread them. Um, but I, I don't think it was like, it, you know, at the, before January 6th. Um, there was actual real unanimity on the particular sort of application of this theory to this set of facts because it had never happened before. So, you know, we could say that there wasn't really unanimity among academics, but also like they were all, for the most part, dealing in hypotheticals and what they thought were really speculative scenarios. And again, listeners, if you want to join the conversation, we're talking with Ankush Khadori former federal prosecutor based in Washington, D.C., also a contributing writer for New York Magazine's Intelligencer and a contributing editor of Political Magazine. Ron Elving is with us, senior editor and correspondent on the Washington desk for NPR News. And if you want to join the conversation, 866-733-6786 is the number. The email address is forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Let me go to May in Rohnert Park. Hi, May. Hi. Um, Well, I would like to say, first of all, I'm relieved that they are doing these hearings, um, and I'm horrified at the way that so so many Republican representatives are are sweeping this under the rug like, are you crazy? Five people or more got killed? Like, that is such an insult to the people who, who, who stand up for this country, you know, officers like that. And the two questions I have is, number one, it sounds like Nancy Pelosi and Pence figured out um, some kind of legal leverage they could have whereby they could call upon the military in that situation. And that's such a slender thread for the country to have hung upon. And I want to know, you know, uh, is somebody working out leverage in such a, in another situation? Because I feel the problem's not really going to go away, you know, in terms of fascists wanting to get control of the um, country, and it came very, 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 very close. My my second question is, I know this is going to sound stupid, but why can't Donald Trump be, I mean, why isn't it negligent homicide? Why can't he be charged with that? Since he knew the violence was going on, these officers were killed because he didn't, I mean, what? <laughs> you know, he's allowed to kill people? So that's my two questions. Thanks. Hmm. Uh, well, let me go back to Ankush on that your thoughts um, on May's question with regard to his role in the deaths? I mean, there's also been that testimony that, uh, you know, of course, while this this uh, attack on the Capitol is going on and you're hearing chants of, of hang Mike Pence, you are seeing uh, 
you are seeing the people who are there reading Trump's tweet basically saying that that Trump didn't, uh, uh, Pence didn't have the courage. In fact, could you review really quickly, Ron Elving, what we learned with regard to the insurrectionists' plans during the testimony? We have learned that the Proud Boys in particular, uh, there's another group called the Oath Keepers, but the Proud Boys in particular came, shall we say, prepared uh, in the sense that they were wearing body armor and helmets, and they had in mind to, in some sense or another, enter that capital. And whether they were going to uh, have to fight their way through police officers or not, they were going in, and, and that is what happened. Uh, and it does appear, and the testimony is still developing here, but it does appear that some of these people have cooperated uh, with the Justice Department, which is prosecuting something close to 800 people. Uh, with respect to the Capitol riot, the Capitol break-in, and all the things we've been discussing. And some of the Proud Boys, it appears, have chosen to cooperate. So there may be information being developed that we haven't entirely aired yet in these hearings, but it does appear as though within that group uh, there was serious talk of uh, getting their hands on Mike Pence. And they were chanting as they, as they flowed through the halls of the Capitol. This is audible on the videotape. They were chanting, hang Mike Pence, where's Mike Pence, kill Mike Pence. So if, if they had, in fact, been able to physically get hold of him, and as I said earlier, they were about 40 feet away at one point, there is every reason to fear that he would have been um, dealt with violently at the time. And that certainly was the fear of the Secret Service. That's why they wanted to get him out of there. And that that just uh, is is something that is still very hard to get your mind around in the united states uh in the year 2022 that our vice president could be in such danger from such people under such circumstances hmm. so ankush president trump is that a stretch that may was asking so the the question was as i understood it like why not prosecute him for something like negligent homicide um it's a it's an understandable question um generally speaking Criminal law does not punish people for acts of negligence. Um, uh, it, it is designed, principally does, police intentional misconduct on the part of people. Um, uh, now, of course, we ha there are versions of homicide or manslaughter charges in jurisdiction, you know, local jurisdictions throughout the country um, where you know, people can be prosecuted for killing, you know, causing someone else's death, even if they didn't intend to actually murder them. Um, it's complicated here because Trump wasn't on the ground, and there would be a very attenuated um, chain of causation for sort of a, a, a theory like that to be used, like a sort of a run-of-the-mill theory of, of murder or homicide or the like. That said, um, there have been arguments to the effect that you know Trump could be effectively um, prosecuted for his failure to act during the three hours that he was in the White House and you know, the, the rioting was unfolding. Um, he didn't, you know, so far as we can tell, you know, he didn't direct any military resources to the Capitol, and he seems to have spent much of the time, you know, kind of watching things unfold on, on television. Um, there, too, you know, I, I'm really not um, entirely uh, um, sort of uh, supportive of that theory, or, or I, I don't ho sort of hold it in particularly high regard, because, again, you know, we just tend to not punish people for mere failures to act. And also, I don't really think theories like that are um, necessary if you want to hold Trump accountable, potentially even criminally accountable for what was happening during that period, right? As I mentioned, the committee has been pursuing two theories 
um, that seem to be getting some traction among the public. Um, and then there are, you know, more discreet theories of potential criminal misconduct, like, you know, the one that I have sort of written about repeatedly in the past, which is that, you know, Trump's call to Brad Raffensperger may mm-hmm. have itself, just even before you get to January 6th, been uh, uh, a violation of the laws that prohibit election fraud. So I think if you're understandably looking at all this and wondering, like, kind of where are the, you know, levers of accountability in the criminal justice system, if that is what is of interest to you, um, there are tools available or theories available that you know, the department could pursue if they were willing to kind of take a more aggressive look at this from an investigative perspective. Um, and, you know, I don't think we necessarily need some of the, the, the theories that may be a little riskier, um, uh, you know, to pursue. Well, let me go to Colin in San Francisco. Hi, Colin. Good morning. Um, so we're about almost four months away from the elections in November. And, you know, I would hate to say that I agree with the, I, I guess the Republican Party's response is, yeah, so what? But I would submit that maybe inflation is a more pressing issue. Um, and the Democratic Party doesn't really seem to have an uh, an answer to address it or even holding hearings on that issue. Mm. Um, so I would question also the timing. Why couldn't these hearings have been held um, and wrapped up a year ago uh, so that we could move on? Well, Colin, well, let me go to Ron. Ron, we're coming up on a break, but he's right. Republican criticism of the hearings is that it's distracting from inflation, other problems with the economy. I, I assume that's what you're hearing as well. Yes, I don't know how many people are distracted from the price they're paying for gasoline by anything else, certainly not by these hearings. Uh, As to the question of why they weren't wrapped up a year ago, uh, this presentation that we're seeing now is the result of a year-long investigation that included more than a thousand interviews and the development of the sources that were involved. Very hard to see how that could have happened in much less time. We'll have more on the hearings after the break. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're looking at last week's January 6th committee hearing. That was last Thursday. And hearing your thoughts and reactions to what's gone on so far. There is more to come this week. The fourth hearing is set for tomorrow. Joining us is Ron Elving, senior editor and correspondent on the Washington desk at NPR News. Ankush Kodori is former federal prosecutor based in Washington, D.C., also a contributing writer for New York Magazine's Intelligencer and a contributing editor at Politico magazine. You, our listeners, are also with us, telling us your thoughts on the hearings, the questions you have, 
You can email us, forum at kqed.org. Post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can call us, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. A few more thoughts from our listeners. Robert writes, let's not lionize Mike Pence for doing the right thing at one key moment. In months leading up to January 6th, he didn't speak out against the campaign of daily lies about a stolen election. Since then, he has not stood up publicly stating, Mr. Ex-President, stop lying about a stolen election. Enough is enough. Stop poisoning the country. And Jennifer writes, it appears we as a country dodged the big lie bullet for 2020, but what about 2024? Are states installing laws and people who would countermand the popular vote? That is what really scares me. Who will be the check on the big lie that state on state officials going forward? You know, Ron, it was actually Judge Michael Ludig who had a similar sentiment that he shared at the hearing on Thursday. I want to play that uh, for us now. The former president, his allies and supporters pledge that in the presidential election of 2024, if the former president or his anointed successor as the Republican Party presidential candidate were to lose that election, that they would attempt to overturn that 2024 election in the same way that they attempted to overturn the 2020 election, but succeed in 2024 where they failed in 2020. I mean, Ron, what do we have at this point? Dozens of candidates who support Trump's election lie who've won their primaries? I believe it's a little over 100 who have, and they're called election deniers. Now, of course, not all of them would be directly in control by any means of uh, the procedure by which we verify elections. Some of them, though, would be. We see people around the country who are gubernatorial candidates, for example, in Pennsylvania, uh, the nominee there for governor in the Republican Party, Mastriano, has not only said that he thinks the election was stolen, but he was one of the false electors who tried to put themselves forward to be an alternative slate uh, for the state of Pennsylvania in the Electoral College. So he participated very much in, in what some people are calling illegal insurrection. So this is, this is going to be part of our electoral scene going forward where you're going to have the, the if you will, permanent big lie about 2020 extended to future elections anytime the results are displeasing to one party or the other, or certainly at least to the people who have said that that's why they want to run for these offices so as to uh, prevent 2020 from happening again when 2020 was by all official independent assessments, in, including the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, everybody else who's looked at it, the Department of Justice, a, a historically accurate election, orderly and administered according to the law. Well, on the line now, we have Los Angeles Congressmember Adam Schiff. Uh, Representative Schiff, thanks so much for being with us. 
You bet. Good to be with you. And I don't know if you just heard the last comment, but we are talking about concerns around state officials who could be in a position, especially if they are advocating and supporting the big lie, to make our elections extremely vulnerable. Um, and you yourself, as I understand it, will be leading tomorrow's hearing that will be looking at pressure that was put on state officials by the former president and his allies to change the 2020 election results. What can you tell us about that? Yes, we'll be focusing on this pressure campaign directed at state legislators, at state elections officials, even at local elections officials uh, to get them to go along with these bogus claims of fraud and essentially nullify the popular vote in those states. Uh, we'll see what they went through, how they stood up to that pressure, uh, many of them Republican elected officials, uh, to do the right thing. Uh, but it is you know, quite terrifying, as you were discussing, that this lie has continued and metastasized and people are running uh, on the basis of this big lie and running for positions where they can um, you know, try to overturn the results next time uh, if it also doesn't go their way. Uh, this is a direct threat to the health of our democracy, and a big part of the point of these hearings is to really inform the public about just how brazen these lies were, how disproven these lies were, and yet how they have persisted, how the former president has persisted in telling them, uh, and how many of his uh, supporters and enablers continue to carry that big lie uh, to this day. Yes, and there are a lot of questions about how criminal these lies were and the impact that those lies have had. And there's been a lot of questions about whether or not your committee will make a criminal referral to the Department of Justice. Congressman Schiff, do you think there's enough evidence for the Justice Department to open a criminal investigation into Trump and his close allies? I think without a doubt there's enough evidence to open an investigation into the former president and to his allies. Uh, and it's not just me, of course, that feels this way. Um, Judge, Federal Judge Carter, David Carter in California, uh, in his opinion multiple times, has talked about the former president and others uh, engaging in actions that likely violated multiple criminal laws, uh, conspiracy to fraud, uh, attempts to interfere with official government functions like the Joint Session of Congress. Uh, so there's, uh, there's ample evidence to open an investigation. Uh, ultimately, it would be up to the department whether there's proof beyond reasonable doubt to convict. But certainly there's evidence uh, to investigate, and I really think it should be done. Well, the Department of Justice has been quite public about its frustration that your committee hasn't yet shared transcripts of interviews that it's conducted with witnesses. Can you explain why not, why the committee is not sharing those with the Justice Department? Uh, you know, we're in discussions with the department. Uh, what the department asked, as far as I can tell, is unprecedented, which is basically open up all of your files. We'd like to see what you have. Um, that's never, uh, and, and I've been involved with major congressional investigations that have been contemporaneous with Department of Justice investigations. That's never done. Uh, the department will come uh, on occasion and say, we're investigating this offense or this person. Can you share this transcript with us and particularize what they want? They don't just say, open your files. Um, nor do we say to the Department of Justice for that matter, although they have things that we would like to see, just open your files to us. So we're, we're discussing it. We're negotiating that. Um, but it's important to point out one other fact. The Justice Department has their own subpoena power. Uh, it's also unprecedented for the Justice Department to say, we're not going to do our own investigation. We're going to simply ask you for yours. Um, the question, among others, is, 
um, why haven't they been looking into these things on their own? And why are they relying so heavily, it would appear, on Congress? We're talking with Representative Adam Schiff, a Democratic congressman representing California's 28th district in Los Angeles County. And you can share your thoughts if you have them for Representative Schiff. I do want to ask you about a couple of comments that we have been getting. For example, this listener writes, aren't these January 6th hearings just a huge echo chamber? Food and fuel prices are soaring. Do Democrats know that working class citizens are suffering? Why are they wasting time on political theater? We have real problems and a three hour riot that happened 18 months ago is low on the list. Congressman, your response? Well, I think for millions and millions of Americans, the preservation of our democracy is not at all low on the list. I would hope it would be on high on the list for everyone. Um, now, that doesn't mean that uh, we're not paying attention to you know, everyday issues of families trying to provide uh, for themselves. We are. Uh, we've been advancing legislation to attack high oil prices and to make baby formula available uh, and to deal with uh, inflation in all of its uh, pernicious uh, impacts. Uh, I've introduced a bill uh, to bring gas prices down by suspending the federal gas tax and paying for it with a windfall profits tax on the oil companies. Uh, we need to do both. Uh, we need to basically uh, address the everyday needs of Americans, but we also need to preserve our democracy because if we lose that, we lose everything. And essentially, I guess that's also why, I mean, you say that you are right now in communication with the Department of Justice. And I know the committee members have said that they would like to see the Justice Department do more to hold people accountable for their role in the attack on January 6th. And I guess at this point, I wonder what it would say if after you've made your presentations that there there was not uh, that effort with regard to accountability. Do you feel like it would, this whole exercise would have been for naught? Uh, no, not at all. Um, look, our function in Congress is not to prosecute people. That's the Department of Justice's function. Our function is to expose wrongdoing when we see it, uh, to expose it to the public light, uh, and to propose legislative remedies to protect the country going forward. And that's exactly what we're doing. Uh, and I think the information we're providing the public is very important to help inform the public about the dangers facing our democracy, how close we came to losing it, and how we could still lose our right to vote and our democracy, the ability to choose our own representatives. None of that is inevitable. And just because it has been the case during our course of history so far doesn't mean that it's going to be true years from now. Um, so that's our purpose, uh, is to protect our democracy uh, and expose the facts. Uh, it will be up to the Department of Justice uh, to take action to hold people accountable from a prosecutorial point of view. Uh, and, you know, they'll have to answer whether they do so or if they don't, why they haven't. And you support the committee making a formal criminal referral? Um, you know, we haven't uh, reached that uh, issue yet, although we've you know started having conversations about it. We want to conclude most of our investigation and our hearings before we make a decision about that. But again, it's important for the public to know the Justice Department doesn't sit around waiting for Congress to make referrals. That's mm. not how the system is supposed to work. Uh, they're supposed to work independently. Uh, we may make referrals, uh, but uh, regardless, the Justice Department uh, needs to investigate anyone for which they have credible evidence that they've violated the law. We're talking with Congressman Schiff, former federal prosecutor Ankush Kadori, and NPR's Ron Elving. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
Congressman Schiff, the last hearing centered a lot on the role of California Attorney John Eastman in pushing the legal scheme to get Mike Pence to stop the certification of the election results. We've now learned that Ginny Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, was in contact with Eastman and that the committee has asked her to testify. Will she? She told the Daily Caller she'd like to. Well, I'm certainly hoping that uh, she will fall through on what she told to that conservative publication. We'd like her to come in. Um, We have a lot of questions we'd like to ask her. So we certainly hope and would expect, based on what she said publicly, that she will. Meantime, Justice Thomas, of course, has not recused himself from cases having to do with the insurrection. What's your view on that? I think it's a, a terrible and quite obvious conflict of interest. For a Supreme Court justice to rule, as this one did, to write opinions uh, in cases in which our committee is seeking documents, uh, documents that might include emails from his wife, uh, to rule in that case, I think, is the most obvious conflict of interest. And he have to recuse himself from any case uh, involving January 6th, and most particularly involving the investigation that we're conducting. Um, he needs to avoid not just the conflict, the real conflict present here, but even the appearance of impropriety. And I think that demands his recusal from these cases. Who else is the committee trying to hear from? Uh, You have mentioned wanting to speak with the former vice president. Yes. I mean, there are a number of still high profile and some not so high profile witnesses we would like to talk to. Uh, I can't, uh, in a public forum, talk about the status of those discussions, but our investigation continues. Uh, it will likely continue even after the last uh, hearing this month, um, and there's still people that uh, we think have very relevant information that we want for our investigation and for our report. Well, let me go to caller Frank in San Jose. Hi, Frank. Hi. How you doing? Great. Go right ahead. Okay. Uh I have two comments. Uh, One of the panelists, I believe, kind of understated the fact that Donald Trump did not act for that long period of time while the uh, attack was going on. And, you know, as an outsider looking in, I would just say that's that's ridiculous. I mean, didn't this man take an oath from office to protect the Constitution and as the as the uh, commander in chief to, to provide for the security of this nation? So I just think that's an obvious uh, act of criminality for any president to have done that, to be inactive during that entire period when the Capitol itself was being attacked. So I don't think we would tolerate that. The other thing uh, with any other president, the other thing I want to say is that in terms of the hearings being televised, I mean, let's be honest, uh, television is the lowest common denominator. It's how we get, get information visually that is so powerful. And does any American, the, the congressman or anyone else, think that if the, if the committee just published the hearing's testimony, it would be as impactful as watching these people testify under oath behind closed doors, like we're seeing in this committee uh, uh, presentation? I mean, I, I just think there's this has to be televised. I don't know how we – and the, the final comment I want to make is that the fact that this guy Trump was nominated and became – the, uh, the nominee of the Republican Party, I think it's a, I think it's just numbed us, numbed a lot of Americans to the outrageousness of this man. 
And I think I think this numbness is continuing in the way some of these comments that I've heard recently on this panel have come through. We would not tolerate this if it was some other person who hadn't over years come out with one outrageous statement after another. We've become numb to the dangerousness of this guy. He's a clown, but he's also very dangerous. That's Frank, let me let the congressman respond to what you're saying. I mean, I guess ultimately, how do you think these are going? And I think there's always this big question. Has the American public largely chosen what it believes and will stay there? What are they? What are these hearings really doing in terms of affecting the public discourse, in your view? Yeah, well, first of all, to the caller's point, um, I think there was the most absolute dereliction of duty uh, when the commander-in-chief uh, commander is sitting in the White House watching the capital of his country uh, being ransacked uh, by rioters, by insurrectionists, watching Capitol Police officers being beaten and gouged and bear sprayed, uh, and does nothing about it. Uh, and you will hear in later hearings um, what the president was doing uh, during that lengthy period of time, and, and importantly, what he was not doing, and what his reaction was uh, to the violence. Uh, so you're going to hear a lot more about that. Um, I, I also think the caller is absolutely right that uh, it is hard to avoid the numbing effect of one shock after another shock after another shock. I mean, uh, you know, you can look at uh, any of these things and, uh, and when you step back from them, realize just how outrageous it is. Uh, but it does tend to numb the senses. And, and we, we have to fight that, uh, that, that urge to just be um, numb to it. Uh, this was, you know, a, a man who ran for president on a platform of building a wall, for example, that Mexico was supposed to pay for, an outrageous suggestion. He becomes president. They don't build the wall. Uh, Mexico doesn't pay for it. His own people raise money for it and steal the money, and he pardons them. I mean, this is just one illustration of a thousand. Uh, I do think the hearings that we're having are impacting people's point of view. We're reaching, I think, millions of people who are still well, thank undecided. You. So thank you, sure. Congressman Schiff. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.